Hello, beautiful listeners. It's your host, Tenby Locke. Welcome to Lifted, a podcast that pulls back the curtain on creativity, resilience, and the extraordinary moments when everything changes. This might just be my most personal conversation to date. In this episode, I sit down with Attica Locke. In case you don't know, she is the author of five books. Her latest novel, Heaven My Home, is a sequel to her Edgar Award-winning Bluebird, Bluebird, and it is also a New York Times bestseller. Her novel, Pleasantville, was a winner of the Harper Lee Prize for Legal Fiction. Her second book, The Cutting Season, was winner of the Ernest Gaines Award for Literary Excellence. And Blackwater Rising, her debut novel, was nominated for an Edgar Award, an NAACP Image Award, as well as an LA Times Book Prize, and was shortlisted for the Women's Prize for Fiction. Attica is also a screenwriter and TV producer, with credits including Empire, When They See Us, and Little Fires Everywhere, for which she won an NAACP Image Award for screenwriting. But she also happens to be my sister. That's right. Together, we co-created and adapted from scratch, but it was her role as showrunner and as sister that made our whole series happen. Attica Locke. <laughs> Welcome to the Lifted Podcast. I'm happy to be here. I'm thrilled that this is even happening. I'm proud of you. I think this is just fantastic. Well, thank you. You know, it's funny. As sisters, this is sort of, we're, <laughs> we're being formal in our like <laughs> hellos because clearly it's podcast. But I think this conversation kind of can flow the way our conversations typically flow, right? How many times a day do we text? Like a bazillion? 15 probably serve yeah somewhere in there minus your tiktoks that you (laughs) (laughs) No, i know it is my new love language i love tiktok so much i don't want to put people like us out of business but (laughs) that shit is really entertaining i could watch it for hours i know i i I know this about you (laughs) and you send them to me and if i don't respond you're like did you see that tiktok i am i am there are even tiktoks about people who send TikToks and then they're like, did you watch the TikTok? That's you. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think a great way to begin for our listeners who are getting to know you and your voice in the world. And by the way, there's going to be a lot of people I'm sure who've read all of your books and know a lot about you, but just sort of take us to your early childhood. Who were the people who influenced you? What were the places that influenced you? That's interesting. You said childhood because I do carry so much of that with me today, starting with our grandmother who taught me to read. Mom's mom, who was a teacher, taught me to read at probably like four. And I am a word person. Words are my love language. I am fascinated with words. And she gave that gift to me. And East Texas is another great influence on me, both because of its natural beauty, the pine trees and the red dirt roads, but also a kind of peace, which is a strange thing to say about Texas right now, which feels unpeaceful in a lot of ways. But in rural East Texas in the 70s, it was quiet. We would have music on grandmother's intercom system that played the radio. It was a time of play. I mean, maybe that's also what I'm getting to. We played hard. 
And so much of the center of what I do as a storyteller kind of all got stirred up in that house on Simon Street. It was the aura of East Texas that I write about in my books a lot. Yes. I mean, we could have a whole podcast talking about her grandmother and her influence on us. I think it's something we believe deeply about the role. I believe the role of elders in our lives, particularly in the lives of young people, is pivotal and key, but she definitely shaped and formed and gave us the space to allow that creativity to flow and to say it matters, spend a whole day in an imaginative space, and that matters. You're still going to do the dishes and help me fold the clothes, but play all day. You say you love words and words are your love language. When you first knew, was it someone who told you, was an experience when you knew a writing, that's for me. Joy Settings, my sophomore year English teacher, I turned in a poem and I remember when I wrote it, something crackled, something felt just so right about it. And she said, oh no, you can write. And it was the way that she said it. It was with such conviction. I still looked up to her. I had already been writing little stories and stuff, but it was the first time an adult figure saw me and validated something in me. It made me feel powerful. It made me feel powerful. I um, was recently listening to Amy Tan speak about writing. And she talked about the first time she was beginning to do creative writing and how she came onto a passage as she was writing and she started to cry. Something happened to her in that moment that she said, ah, this is the space. Oh, this is what I want to do. And so when you talk about that thing crackling inside of you, when you just knew, how old would you say you were 15-ish? I was 15 when someone validated it. I actually have an earlier memory of feeling like, oh, this is my jam. And I was 11 and it was a family reunion in Chicago. Our family reunions are extra. And I was probably trying to get away from some activity, mini golf or some costume contest. There's always something. And so I went up to the hotel room by myself and I pulled out Marriott Stationery and I wrote a story. And that was the first time I chose my own company over other people. I chose the inside of my own mind over everything else that was going on. On the other side of having done this big thing with From Scratch, which is so big and shiny and noisy and complicated, I have to remind myself when I have so much neurosis about the book that I'm writing, what I'm ultimately choosing to do is to spend time with myself. And that that's really what the writing of the book is. It is, do I value spending time with Attica? Because if I don't, we got to have another kind of conversation. But that is really the value of the book, no matter how it lives in the world. Even though I have lots of feelings about, I wish my book sold more. I wish all this kind of stuff. That feeling at 11 is something I'm circling back to at 48. I love how you say choosing to be in the company of yourself, right? You know, you know me, we talk a lot about We do talk a lot about creativity, mostly because we're engaged in creative activity together, but the process, right? I want to go back to this 11-year-old you at the family reunion. And by the way, as your older sister, I was like, where did she go? What did she do it? We have to get down and do whatever that family activity I have a sneaking suspicion that summer I was supposed to be a supreme 
with Vonda and Venetia. We were supposed to dress up like the Supremes and do a show. I don't know what it was, but I was like, I need to just be by myself. <laughs> I, I, I am, first of all, you took me off course because I'd forgotten about that. But yes, that's the family that we come from that we're having a family reunion in Chicago and yet all the children are tasked, the girl daughters <laughs> are tasked with reenacting the Supremes, yes. Okay, but again, play. That is a form of play. I mean, the, it was adult sanctioned and going to the room and writing at 11, and I've seen you do this at family gatherings since. I mean, into your early adulthood when you first got to Hollywood and were beginning to write for television. You've always journaled, that I know about you, but that saying, I've had my fill of the world, either in the company of others or a social event, and now I need this space that is just mine. You have always been, and I can say observationally as your sister, excellent at knowing that, honoring it, and when I say honor it, that means taking the next step to go and give that to yourself. How did you know to give that gift to yourself? Can I be honest and say it is an ongoing process? I was just journaling this morning about needing to choose myself over something else. I simply have to practice it. I think it comes to me naturally, obviously, because at 11 years old, I just had an impulse to retreat and be still. But the older you get, and the more things that pull at you from a marriage to children to a vibrant career where I'm getting calls to do really exciting things that are very, I keep coming back to the word shiny. Hollywood is just so shiny. And you get calls to meet with this person, that person, but are they more important than me, than what I want to do and time that I want to spend with myself? It's not always easy. I just have to practice it. It's like a muscle that you learn to flex. And if you never flex it, you'll never be comfortable doing it. I can honestly say that I think the only reason why I was able to write from scratch or even had the idea to write the audacity to write a first book was because I had lived adjacent to you and watched the way you had flexed. And I don't mean what I would say is the shininess of your literary career, which is incredibly shiny <laughs> and beautiful and big and bright. But I mean, the flex of saying, no, I need to make space for this singular voice, this point of view in the world that lives in my imagination, but then I employ my creativity to realize it. I'm very fascinated recently about this distinction between imagination and creativity. And a lot of this came off of the, again, I was referring earlier to Amy Tan, but, you know, she was sort of talking a little about that. And it made me think that we have imagination. I can read a passage in a book and I can imagine what the characters look like, but creativity is something different. Creativity is when you choose to sit down in the case of words and now try to craft creatively using the tools you have in the world to take that vision in your imagination and now craft it into something, create it into something else. I've seen you do that over the course of a lifetime and I think it's just, it's absolutely fascinating. I wanna talk to you about your early professional experiences as a writer. I know you went to Northwestern, you graduated. I was at your graduation. The barbecue was fantastic. The music was on point. 
And then you're like, I'm going to LA. Yes. I know you had your then boyfriend. Yes. You're now, yes. Yes. <laughs> but you did not miss a beat blink an eye. It was like, as if it was as normal as I wake up in the morning and I put my shoes on, you know, you were like, of course I'm going to LA and I'm going to now be a creative professional in Hollywood. It's funny. Cause Carl, my husband teases me about this, that I came to LA just knowing I was going to sell a script within three months and I was just going to be a superstar. Some of that helped me that just, Oh, it's all just going to work out some kind of way helped. Ultimately, what truly helped is just you have to kind of love the thing so that when it's not going how you want it to be going, you still have that love to hold on to. There was the excitement of first getting here, but shortly then it was like, oh, I remember I got a job as a temp with a temp agency that catered to Hollywood. I would be answering phones at HBO for a day, or I'd be answering phones at a commercial production house or stuff like that. And then I jumped from that to getting a job in publicity at the WB. And then from that, I figured out how to jump from that to working on a TV show. How does this go to the next thing? And then I realized it goes back to something you said before. I had to write something that could be my calling card. I had to do something to make a change. It wasn't just going to happen. And so I remember when we went on hiatus, I was like, well, I just don't think I'm going to go back. And I had actually saved money by literally taking cash and like putting it in my closet at that apartment on Kimmore. I saved up cash in the closet so that I could just not go back to work. That's when I wrote, I think, I can't remember which I wrote first. I wrote the script called The Cage or I wrote the 59 script that went to Sundance. You wrote The Cage first. Okay, thank you. <laughs> I, was, I was your early reader, the case ah! came first, and I did not know the story of the cash in the closet. Yes. And there's so much to unpack there. One is the act of saying, no, I'm literally squirreling away money. I am making a deposit on a future self, right? I am doing that for myself. The closet piece, because it could have been in a coffee can on the kitchen sink. Why I was it in the closet? Know, was it I in like a shoebox? The memory I'm getting is I would take it and tuck it. I don't even know what it was tucked in, but it was tucked in something and it had to be cash. I needed to physically know it couldn't just be an account somewhere. Plus, I didn't have enough money to really be have an extra account. I just need to take some of that paycheck. I think I was trying to save like $100 a week, which at the time was like a lot of money. I mean, what, what resonates with me from that is also the ritual, like that you, you created a system and you were like, I'm going to do this. And then you held yourself accountable to your dream. And then you had something tangible to look at. I mean, yes, I'm sure you could have a digital account and just look at your balance, but there was something probably. Girl, they didn't have no digital accounts back then. <laughs> but what I'm trying to get at is the way in which you're making your dream manifest and you're making it tangible. I don't know. There's just a lot there. And it's a beautiful visual of a creative person trying to build the world that they want to live in, right? Which is kind of what you now do in story and in other ways, but in a way that that simple gesture, which was a big gesture of putting money to give yourself the space to do what you wanted to do and to follow that dream. For viewers who've seen from scratch and the episode two, when the sisters are living... <laughs> The, the origin story of said episode is the fact that we did live in the same apartment together. We didn't live in the same 
apartment building. We didn't live in the same apartment, but we lived across the hall from each other, right? So I just had to circle back and sort of give that little tidbit there. When I first read your script, I was blown away. And as your sibling, as your sister, I was like, she's got the goods. Because at the time I was beginning my acting career and- You got me my first agent. I did, didn't I? Mm -hmm. Wow, okay. Well, you deserved it. I mean, I didn't do it. <laughs> you did it. <laughs> I probably just said, hey, I to an agent at my agency, like maybe you should read this person's writing because they're great. But you began to write scripts. Sundance happened. Your time at the Sundance Lab, which I know was a seminal and pivotal growth point for you. Sitting on the sidelines watching that unfold, what I saw was an artist who is beginning to hone and shape herself and her point of view. You were stretching yourself. You were in the face of fear, still reaching for things that scared, you know, the daylights out of you, as they say, that didn't thwart you from actually reaching for them. I learned one of the most critical things about myself that I carry with me today. The way that it worked there, you're workshopping things, you're trying things. Nothing is really about perfection or finishing something. It's all just workshop trying. You would film five scenes from your script. You only have from like nine to six to edit because this, again, it's not about staying up all night. It's about just getting there with the process. And you have major advisors roaming around this mountaintop. You know, Denzel Washington is over here. Gus Van Sant is over there. And so on this particular day while I was editing, Alfonso Cuaron, and the gentleman who directed Heather's, I don't know why I can't remember his name, walked in and said, hey, what's, let's see what you're doing. I showed them what I was working on. And then one of them went, but I, why did you go to the two shot there? And then the other one went, no, I know why she's doing that because da, 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 da. then they started having their own debate about how it should be cut. And then they walked out. <laughs> and I had all these notes. I'm 24, 25. You know what I did? Like a big old dummy. I tried to do everything that they said and it was so bad and it was so not mine that I remember after the screening, we had these screenings and then we would have communal style meals. I skipped dinner and went and hid. I went and hid in the house where I was staying because I was so ashamed. And what I learned is that I'm perfectly willing to fail if it's mine. What I cannot abide by is doing stuff that is to please other people and then that fails. I now know this about myself. That gives me a kind of courage to know if the shit falls apart, but I gave it my all, it was truly my heart, I can live with that. If I am doing a bunch of people's notes and it's terrible, I can't show my face. That is something that I've carried with me for now decades. That is an incredible story. I think incredibly insightful for a lot of us. And I think it's applicable to whatever industry you're in. It's the idea of trying to, well, obviously please others, but in the process, erasing your own point of view. And I can imagine for you on that mountaintop, it must've felt like a betrayal to that 11 year old you who used to sneak away and wanted time to herself to find her voice, right? It, it, it took years of therapy to figure out what it was. And that night, all I felt was I'm too embarrassed to eat quinoa or whatever the hell we were eating on the mountain with everybody else. I'm too embarrassed because what was that? I literally put a fight between two people. I don't know. We're not related. 
I wouldn't get in a check from them. Like, why did I suddenly decide? But that's the thing about, it's so hard when people, the sh- I go back to the shininess of it all. We live in a culture where if Alfonso Cuaron walks in at U25 and you haven't done anything, he knows more than you. Even if it's about his Texas, your family, whatever, he has to know more because he's who he is, because of the shininess of his name. If Denzel Washington gives you a note, you better listen to it because it's Denzel Washington. It's really hard sometimes in our particular industry to choose to value what hasn't already been valued by everybody else. You're valuing something new that hasn't been birthed yet. And I think a lot of my career, both in my, when my books first came out and some people were not quite understanding why were these mysteries having all this political history in them? I was doing something that was new and it can be very hard to stand up for what's new when no one else has seen it yet. That is a perfect segue to my next question, which is, I want to go to that moment when you had the first impulse and your desire to tell us this moment when you said, I need to write a book. And when you wrote your first book, Blackwater Rising, and you literally cracked open a mold in a new way in the publishing industry, and you did something no one was doing. And as a black woman, you were doing it, but talk to us first. And I'm less interested about what it did for your career because people can read about that, but I'm more interested in what it did for you personally. So can you tee up a little bit or talk to us about that? You've had the moment with Alfonso Caron and (laughs) you've been on the mountain and now you're like, I need to write a book. How did that come about? A lot of people don't know this about me. They think I am a book person who went to Hollywood, whereas my career is actually this weird zigzag. I started in Hollywood. I hit an absolute psychological breaking point and I walked away from Hollywood, went into publishing and then circled back to Hollywood on my own terms. Warner Brothers was doing a remake of Wait Until Dark, one of my favorite movies, Audrey Hepburn, the older Arkin, Alan Arkin. Love, love, love this thrill. Love it to pieces. Thought, why are you remaking this? That doesn't make any sense. But if you are, I want to do it. So I got the job. I go to New York to just absorb New York. I had a dream that I was living like on a film commune, Hmm, Sundance maybe. I was living on a film commune where we all lived and worked and made projects together. And it was the night of a very, very, very big premiere, but I was on janitorial duty. So on the night of this very big premiere, I am mopping and cleaning up with another team. And I stopped and I stood the mop up and I went, I don't think I want to do this anymore. I don't think I want to do this anymore. And somebody was like, what? They were like, I, I, they were like, I don't think you can just say you don't want to do it. And you have to go tell Marlon because who was running this film commune but Marlon Brando. But wait, it was Marlon Brando from On the Waterfront. So he was in black and white and I had to go meet with him on the waterfront docks, Blackwater Rising. So I go to meet with Marlon Brando and I say, I don't want to do this anymore. And he says, are you sure? because I've heard really great things about you. I've heard really great things about your talent. And I said to him, this isn't what I thought it was gonna be. And I woke up in a hotel room in New York City weeping. I had been crying in my sleep. I would say within a year and a half, I was planning to write a book. And I walked into my agency and told them, I think I'm done. And they said to me, I think the 
this is a story you're going to tell 20 years from now, which I'm telling right now when you're back in Hollywood. But for me, at that point, after leaving Sundance, I had a movie deal. I was 25. And then the whole thing fell apart and it fell apart for reasons that were frankly terrifying because I was trying to do a multiracial rural American story with a black female lead. There was all this talk about how do we raise financing overseas? Nobody cares about black people. This is again, dating myself. This is pre a Black Panther, pre a Fruitvale Station, pre Creed, pre Moonlight, pre any of this kind of stuff. And they just shut it down. What I heard in that is there's not a business model for who you are. And I panicked because I just thought I'm fucked. What am I going to do? Carl and I were about to get married. We were broke. I said, well, I'm not a write. I'll just do that. I'll just write stuff that you guys have already decided that you're going to make. But I'll take myself and tuck it away because it seems like nobody's interested in me, but I can just provide a service and make money. So yeah. And I did that for 10 years. I wrote scripts for pretty much every major studio, one after the other, constantly worked, never wanted for work. And none of that got made either. So the joke was on me. And all I did was write to go to meetings and get my parking validated. I was also writing for people, God love an executive who don't fundamentally love to read. So it just all felt really, really, really pointless. And I don't think it is a coincidence in here that Sauter got diagnosed during this time period. I felt a sense of, oh no, oh no, there's not a lot of time. There's not a lot of time. So something's got to give. And I went to Skylight Books and I just started looking at books and opening, reading the front page until I was working myself up to say, I think I can do this. What Blackwater Rising did for me as a human being, it is, it was the, at the time, now from scratch takes this mantle, but at the time it was the most, transformative, expansive experience of my life other than motherhood. You said to me that year when I was writing the book, you were like, where are you? Where are you? I probably was calling you less. And, and I can only say, Tembi, this feels as big to me as the year I learned to walk and talk. I don't know what I'm doing. I have to do it. I'm scared and I'm just being quiet till I can kind of figure this out. Thank you for that share, because I want to go back to the moment in the hotel room in New York, the dream Marlon Brando on the waterfront. So you have this dream. It's clear to you that a life change has to happen in your professional life. It's some time, you said about a year and a half before you were into the writing. And because this podcast is a lot about these inflection points in our life, right? This moment when we're faced with something where you're like, I can't do this. I don't know if I can do this. I, I, this is impossible. And yet we find a way forward. What was holding you back? Like that next day, you didn't just fire everybody and say, I'm writing my book starting tomorrow, right? So you spent about a year and a half wrestling, asking yourself, am I ready to do this? Can I do this? Were you just kind of saving money again in your shoebox? Like, do you remember that process? Consciously, I remember why I had to finish the job that I was doing. And I was thinking about how would I walk away to give myself the amount of time I, I didn't know how long I would need to write a book and never done it. So I think there was a lot of conscious, still walking up to the cliff of giving myself permission before I jumped to fly. I was still tiptoeing up to like, it's okay, it's okay. Now, I will say that for me, 
I was infused also by this felt so intense to me. And again, I don't discount where in here Sato's diagnosis fits. It felt life or death to me. And I'm not being hyperbolic. I literally was like, I cannot continue to exist like that. I'm dying inside is how I felt. And I just had to do something. I'm getting the image of girl double dutching. I'm like, okay, I'm getting in. I'm going to get, I'm going to jump in now. No, not yet. Okay. I'm going to go now. I was just trying to find the right time to take the leap. I want to just, for those listening who may not know who Sato is, Sato was my late husband, Attica's brother-in-law. He is the inspiration for the character Lino in the series. That diagnosis changed my life. You're my sister. We are incredibly close. It doesn't surprise me that it changed your life. I think for many people listening, if you have anyone in your life who has a critical life-threatening diagnosis, or there's an accident, or suddenly you are face to face with the ultimate vulnerability and fragility that is life itself. And if you are called as a creative person to leave your, as Elizabeth Gilbert says, your handprint on the wall of life, then you got to get to work. Kind of the only way I can say it, I know people who are diagnosed, those who are near and close to people who are diagnosed or who've been through an illness, and they don't necessarily choose to, you know, go write a book, right? But if you're a creative person, maybe they do some other endeavor. They volunteer more. They love more deeply. They seek closer, intimate friendships. But there's some life change that occurs. It's how it expresses itself. For you, it expressed yourself in this desire to say, I'm going to, with great singularity, put my voice on the page. There's a song by Jason Isbell. I believe it's called When We Were Vampires, If We Were Vampires. It's actually a love song. If we were vampires and we had all the time in the world, we could smoke, we could drink, we could do all this kind of stuff. But the truth of the matter is that probably one of us is going to have to spend some time alone. That's one of the lyrics. And so that maybe running out of time is a gift because it makes us hold on. And I love, love that song because when something like this happens to people, whatever form that it takes, once death taps you on the shoulder, you can't unfeel that tap. And it was always there. But once you know it's there, you live with an intentionality that you can't ever undo unless it scares you so much that you run from it, hide from it, try to numb it with substances. But if you are awake to it, you begin to understand maybe time running out is a gift because it makes you love hard. Yes, I co-sign on all of that. You're making me think about what is part of the alchemy of how we move through change in our lives. Like what are these components? So for you, you're writing, you have your creative life, someone very close to you, your brother-in-law, who was a brother to you, is now diagnosed, is going through chemotherapy, and you're meeting this moment of change. And it sounds to me like a part of your alchemy for sort of navigating all of that. And I call it an alchemy because it's not one thing, right? (laughs) If only in life, it's like, oh, I do this one thing over and over and over again, it will help me every time. I mean, I guess undergirding that is if you meet it at the moment with love all the time, that is a consistent thing. But a lot of times in the alchemy, it's meeting it with an open heart. It's also being curious. It's also talking to people. It's also writing. 
if you could assign ingredients to this sort of alchemy of how you were navigating this, was it like talking to your husband a lot? I mean, I know you have your your therapist, was it journaling? What are some of the tools helped you? Journaling, for sure. Therapy, for sure. Carl, yes. Walking, taking walks, taking walks with music, savoring the exquisiteness of moments in life. Because again, like I said, once you realize, hey, we're not all going to be here forever. There's this pleasure pain point of being alive that sits on top of itself where you're, you're so happy to be alive. You're so in love with that sunset. That breeze feels so amazing. And right on top of it is the pain of, I'm not going to have all this forever or I'm going to lose people that I love. Everything is not going to stay the same. So in a moment, you just try to stop and savor it. In fact, I had a particular walking path around Mount Washington and there were particular views that I would pause to have these kinds of moments. I mean, our dad has one in East Texas. He has that space on the back of the property where, what was he called his prayer space, a special place? I had versions of this on walks and with music and music is a heart opener for me. I guess it's also kind of just radical gratitude. It's just in this moment, I'm going to choose to radically feel grateful for anything that's right in front of me. Walking was so powerful for me. I would say for six to eight months after Sato died, I could not take the walk and I could not listen to music. It was too overpowering because I had begun to associate that with just the exhilaration of being alive. I think that the greatest gift for everybody, if you can learn to practice it, I mean, love is a thing that you, some people are just really loving or they're not as loving. But gratitude is something everybody can practice. Sometimes when I can't sleep at night, it's my way to sleep. Or I literally am just like, I feel grateful for these sheets. These are very nice sheets. Or I love that tree. I love, I love that I get to live with that tree outside my window. Just the simplest things of just gratitude. I want to take a minute and talk about what, in your work as a writer, what are some of the themes that you think you circle back to? Is there one theme thematically that in your work as an early screenwriter, then in your first book, second book, and now five books in, is there something that you circle back to? Is there something you're working out on the page as a writer, as a creative person? Yeah, I think so. Return to a question of what does psychological freedom look like? That I understand as a Black American, the legal freedom that I have today, because I I may not have them next week, but I understand the legal freedoms that I have. But what does it mean to be free up here in your mind? What does that look like? What are the impediments to that kind of psychological freedom? That's something that I return to a lot. I love that. I feel that in your work. We had a lot of discussions about that as we were forming the outline of what the series of From Scratch would look like, because as we know, as women and just as people on the planet and as storytellers, is that over the course of a life, you're going to have these inflection points. And there are ways in which you are seeking something that you can't quite see yet. You've got to have the psychological freedom to even dream that. <laughs> to even dream. And so in our like pilot, Amy is going on this adventure. She's looking for some kind of psychological freedom. That's a version of it, right? So I want to segue a little bit to talking about working together. Yeah, it was fun. And writing from scratch. 
we wrote the finale together. Yeah. Well, we wrote the pilot together and we wrote the finale together. So what was the biggest challenge we had in sort of the writing process of taking, and I mean, not just forming the series in our minds, because that was its own sort of mental exercise and distilling it down and deciding what we wanted to hold, what we wanted to let go, but like just the writing process of the episode. We're in the writer's room. Take us back to like, what do you think was some of the biggest challenges and you as showrunner doing both? First of all, I think we had a kind of blessed writer's room that actually was as smooth as it could have gone. I think probably the greatest challenge is the fact you were the only one who'd been to Sicily. And I tangentially, because I had been around Rosario Gulo for 20 plus years and I had met his family, I understood Sicilian culture probably behind you in it, but nobody else really got it. I would say that was a big challenge, both in terms of having writers pitch on a culture that they're learning about at the same time, and they caught on pretty well. And then we're also pitching about things that they can't quite visualize. Then in making it, we also had to have people visualize actual sets. That was kind of the hard thing. And I would say with the finale, the hardest thing is you literally could make another series that's just in Sicily. I mean, we talked for a while about, should that be the show? I mean, we talked about everything, but there was so much material. Because you know me, I could see a whole series on Santina, which I actually want to star in. (laughs) I want to be her understudy, her stand-in. I love Santina so much. I remember in the writer's room when I kind of beginning to sort of do like a Sicilian culture (laughs) one-on-one like you know for the writers like okay guys so the island isn't a monolith (laughs) there's small towns there's coastal towns all the things we talked about but when I first started telling stories of the women in town the Santina stories and we love we love the character of Santina and yes Attica you should play Santina (laughs) (laughs) not that there will be Another series based on From Scratch, but the production process. Yes. First of all, we shot during COVID and having our production designer, who's also been on our podcast, talking to us about the process of sort of building Sicily here in LA, like the interior spaces and what that looked like. And, but I think on set for 108, our finale was like getting into the emotional heartbeat And for us, I think as sisters and as co-creators was like holding what we knew the story needed to sort of track and hold. Also, let's just get with the practical. How many times did you say heat, heat? We've got a reminder, but it's hot out there. It's hot out there. They can't play this right now like it's chilly chill on the set because it's hot. And then we got to Sicily and oh my God, was it hot? You can't know that kind of heat. (laughs) you actually experience it. It also was like, I remember sitting on set with you and looking at the monitor and being like, we have recreated it, the interior of a house in Sicily and nobody here has ever been there. I mean, that is to me, talk about alchemy, talk about creativity, talk about vision and everybody sort of, there's this imagined space and now we come together creatively, the alchemy of a group of people coming together to sort of hold a vision and seed it forward and build it out. It was wonderful. So I want to ask you, What is your favorite scene in episode 108 and why? There are so many, but surprise, surprise, they've done the funeral procession and you feel like, oh, this was sweet. And this was, oh, this is so sad. And then Santina comes and sits down in that chair and starts asking questions. Now you did wear black, right? I mean, at least one day, didn't you wear black? That's when I know like, oh, we're about to bounce into something else. So I think the fun of it for me 
as a creator is having written something and their performances, the little micro expressions that are going on between Philomena and Santina and how they're orchestrating this whole conversation is so specific to that culture and we caught it. But then also as a viewer, I'm like, oh, oh wait, this ain't gonna be a regular kind of funeral story because now it's going in this other direction. And it's funny, but it's also serious. And it captures the kind of tone of the show that swings from our series, swings from tears back to laughter and back to tears over and over and over again. And that's just one of those moments. And also I have felt like one of the beautiful things about your marriage to Sato, beautiful things about our two families coming together is different languages, different food, but there's a base level humanity where some rural East Texas, let me pull up a chair and gossip about them biddies down there is the same as Santina and Philomena setting out their chairs with the laundry to talk. And I just love that. That scene makes me so happy. How has writing and producing this episode and for that matter, this series changed you? Honest answer is I don't think I'll know for another 30 years. I can't process it all, but I can tell you right away, I feel stronger. I feel like I went to battle on some things and I came out of it. I feel like I trust my kind of voice, but I also feel very much like something that Keith David said to me when he said, this has kind of raised the bar for me on the type of work I want to do. I don't really want to do just anything anymore. And I feel that way on the other side of from scratch. Now, do I want to get bit by five bees within 20 minutes in the rural Sicilian countryside? No. But do I want to love a project so much that I would still get up the next day, swollen from bee stings and do it all over again the next day? Yes. I'm really searching for something that feels like this again, that feels heartfelt that feels new, that feels vanguard, that feels challenging and funny. And I want something that feels this special again. The title of this podcast is Lifted because I feel that we all have people, moments, experiences. We transform through something difficult to come out of the other side a little lifted, right? For me, as a caregiver, I was seeking to always sort of like lift our lives above illness so that we could still touch the grace, the love, the light while this difficult unfolding was happening. You've shared today moments. I'll never forget the story of you in the hotel room in New York and that waking up in the dream. The dream was like an opportunity, a call to like lift your life above what was already like a really good life. You know, I mean, you were a wonderful, well-paid screenwriter, but there was some part of you that wasn't quite fulfilled. And so I want to ask you as our final question, as our time draws to a close, do you have a moment, do you have what I call a from scratch moment where life was hard, challenging, there was something impossible before you, and you had to rebuild or start over and reimagine something different? What is your from scratch moment? It goes back to my first book. When I started writing it, I had no model for how it was done or how I could survive financially. So I tried to do what I did with screenplays. I was, oh, I'll write like a little bit of it and I'll try and sell it based on the first few chapters. That didn't work. People said no. One person said no, but also said, could you tell her something through my Hollywood agent? She said, tell her my first version of Blackwater Rising. It alternated between chapters of Jay Porter 
and this white lawyer that he interacts with named Charlie Luckman. And it would go back and forth between their voices. And she said, I'm not going to represent this book, but tell her something. That is not her book. Her book is Jay Porter. And I knew instantly she was right. And I was fucking terrified. I went and stayed in a hotel room in Palm Springs to rethink my book. And I sat on the floor of that hotel room in Palm Springs and wept because I knew that to tell that book, I was about to reveal my actual soul in a way that I had never done, or at least hadn't done since I took that project to Sundance. That soul that I put away, in order to write this book, I was going to have to bring myself back to my work in a way that I wasn't doing. And it would be revelatory that I would be necessarily coloring myself for the world. And what I mean by that is I was praised a lot for being of no color in Hollywood, meaning I could write a comic book adaptation. I could do something for Sandra Bullock. I could do this. Nobody thinks of you as black. So to write Jay Porter, write the soul of this frightened black man who's trying to become psychologically free, who is me, I was going to have to show that to the world. And I wanted to, but I was very, very scared. I don't think the man who told me what that woman said finished the sentence before I knew he was right and that that woman was right. And she gave me a gift for no other reason than just pass this along to her. And she was right. And it was a challenge. It was a call to action. And it changed your life. It completely changed my life. I only was able to come back to Hollywood because I came back to my own voice. That voice I had tucked away, I needed books to find it again. The time it takes to write a book, how difficult it is to have the courage to show back up to Hollywood as Attica, all of Attica. It fundamentally changed my life. And it very much helps to have people around you who vibrate at the same energy level. Some people see you trying to climb out and they'll drag you back down. And we're fortunate to not have a ton of those people in our lives. Yes. And I like to say that I've been blessed to have people who have been able to hold a vision for my life when I couldn't yet see it. You've been one of those people for me when you said, you need to write a book done. You need to do that. And you could see something that I could not see yet. And I think everyone needs to have that in their life or be that for someone else. You're making space for that in your own life. I can't thank you enough for this conversation. I love talking to you, as you know. (laughs) I hope that this conversation is really about pulling back the curtain on all aspects of the process of living a full, purposeful, artful, full tilt, all cards on the table kind of life and the people and experiences that it takes to lift us as we try to do that. I love you. I have the pleasure of chatting with Attica every day, actually often several times a day, but we don't always slow down in this way to drill deep and talk process. So her wisdom today around investing in your future self, around choosing to spend time with your own inner voice, your own inner life as a way to find your authentic voice, that will stay with me. But more than that, it was her transparency, her vulnerability around her willingness to fail that inspires me. Because as she says, if I gave it my heart, I can live with that. I hope this conversation has inspired you, and I hope this entire first season has lifted you. 
Lifted is developed, written, and produced by me and my one-woman producing team, Salia Cates. It is edited by Jamie Moss. Thank you for joining us. Stay tuned for our next inspiring episode. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.